just just that whole concept of rejection really made a difference in my life. I could have succumbed to it and folded up and wilted away and just been defeated. And I said, no, no, we can't do this because there's always another path. Failing. 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 When we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I'm a little bit excited, a little bit nervous. And I'm super pumped because today I have Dave McGilvery. Dave, did I say it right? Yeah. Perfect. Wow. Like you've been doing it for years. <laughs> been practicing it. Okay. Yeah. So everybody, so many of you are going to know him already as the founder and president of DMSE Sports, the race director of the Boston Marathon. Um, and he's a Bostonian. So welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if if you need an interpreter, let me know. I see if I can pull someone in and understand my accent. <laughs> Listeners, before we started, I was like, David, I love your accent so much. She's like, what are you talking about? You guys are the ones with the accent. You're right, Dave. We are. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, I can understand um, you, though. Right, Dave. Uh, can you give our listeners like some background around where you grew up? What was your family like? Can I guess that it was like... Irish Catholic or something? Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Mm. Father knows best, all of that. Yeah. So I grew up right side, right outside of Boston in Medford, Mass. And, um, you know, just uh, you know, a, a quasi-suburban, but urban setting. Um, but, you know, again, five children in the family. I was the youngest of five. And... Um, it's just for me, growing up in the greater Boston area, yeah. surrounded by sports, my whole MO in life as a little boy was to be an athlete. Mm -hmm. And so that's the direction I took. And I every day <coughs> I went to the park and I played basketball and baseball and just all the sports. And I dreamed of being a professional athlete, playing second base for the Boston Red Sox or guard for the Celtics or playing for the New England Patriots, what have you. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I was um, relatively short in stature. Okay. And as a result, you know, you get you get to be the last pick. And I was always the last one cut when, you know, when I went out for team sports. Um so at the ripe old age of like 14, yes. I learned the concept of three different pains you can experience in your life. There's, there's physical pain, which you can train to overcome, and there's mental pain, which you can train to overcome. But then there's the third one, which is the most debilitating one, and it's emotional pain. Mm. And that's what I was experiencing as a young kid is the concept of rejection. And that was... <clears throat> devastating to me. No, I didn't have heart illness at the time. I didn't have cancer, but I had something else that brought me to my knees and I had to figure it out. And not to be denied, I said, well, then I'll run because nobody can cut you from running. Mm -hmm. 
And that's when I started my running career. It was interesting when I went out for the high school basketball team. I was the last one cut. And the coach comes up to me, puts his arm around me. He looked down at me. Everyone looked down at me. And he said, <laughs> Dave, if you were five inches taller, you'd be my starting guard. I went, huh? I looked at the coach and I said, I thought it had to do with ability level, coach, not how tall you were. So I challenged the center who made the team to one-on-one to 21 in front of the team. And he was 6'5". I was 5'4". on a really good day and I beat him and it was a defining moment in my life because we all have defining moments in our lives it's just a matter of you know recognizing them and some are good and some are not so good but this one was a defining moment and I walked off that court that day when I was I think I was about 15 years old And I said to myself, as a young boy, I will never, ever, ever allow anybody to tell me I'm not good enough, that I don't belong. Mm -hmm. So I went home that night and I put a sign over my bed. You know, there's signs all around us. Well, I made one and I put it over my bed and the sign said, please, God, make me grow. And unfortunately, he must have been on vacation or uh, answering someone else's prayer (laughs) prayers because he didn't make me grow. But then I look back on my life in retrospect, and I say, son of a gun. He did make me grow. He made me grow in so many other ways. He made me grow morally and ethically and spiritually and intellectually and mentally. He made me grow internally because that's where it's all happening. It's who you are inside, not who you are physically. And again, that's when I started to run. Dave? Um, at such a young age of 14, and where do you think you got that grit or determination or gumption from? You know, I, it's a good question. I mean, I was the youngest of five. My other siblings really weren't ath- athletic necessarily. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that same passion. I guess we're all born with certain DNA, certain wiring, mm-hmm. and we, we don't necessarily decided or determined it, it just bubbles out. And, and for me, um, just, just that whole concept of rejection really made a difference in my life. I could have succumbed to it and folded up and wilted away and just been defeated. And I said, no, no, we can't do this because there's always another path. And that's my whole mission in life, especially with children. You know, I wrote a book called The Last Pick. Why? For obvious reasons. And people say to me all the time, what's your book about? I said, if you read it, it's about you. Mm -hmm. It's about all of us because we all have these challenges in our lives. No one gets a a free pass here, folks. You know, and it's just a matter of how you deal with them, how you respond and how you respond defines you. You know, going forward. Can you break down for me the difference, according to you, between emotional and mental? Because you talked about emotional, physical, and mental. Yeah. So for you, what's the difference between the emotional and mental? Okay. So, for example, in the world of running, you Mm -hmm. know, um, you could be running a marathon and physically be ready to drop. But then mentally, you know, you're... Your, your mind takes over and you're, you, you know, you just say, I, I train too hard. I'm, 
I'm, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to, I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and overcome this physical pain. But emotionally, you could be doing it to raise money for a charity, for a greater purpose, yeah. to help that little boy who's in the hospital, you know, recover and get home and yeah. live a normal and healthy life. Also, that concept enters your brain. And to be honest with you, that is probably the, the strength that, you, that really overcomes you know, the, the challenge of whatever it is you're up against. And that's what's interesting about our sport of running, yeah. because, you know, in the early years, it was all very competitive. Then just those of us who were, you know, hardcore runners, all we want to do is get out there and, and drill each other into the pavement. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we went to a race, it wasn't like, oh, I hope I finish. It was like, how fast am I going to run and who am I going to beat today? It was yeah. very competitive. Then the walls of intimidation crumbled. People started believing in themselves. Why? Philanthropy entered the space. Oh. And people were doing it for a greater purpose. They were doing it for something bigger than themselves. Yes, yes. So that that made them say, well, I, I'm not going to be intimidated anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my big boy pants and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to participate and I'm going to do it in honor of, in memory of, or to raise money for, yes. you know, a, a cause. And that's what you're seeing uh, before the pandemic anyways. Mm -hmm. That's what you see. And that's why the spike in the sport has been so great. And races were selling out at in record pace. And that's what I mean by emotional strength and emotional pain. So I feel like, um, so I, I ran the half pig, flying pig in oh, Cincinnati. Which shout out to Iris for connecting us. And I ran it too. Yeah. Yeah, I know, and you got an award too. Yeah. Um, so, if I were being honest right now, I'm going through a divorce, and it is like harder than my parents dying. Okay. Yeah. And when I was preparing for our interview, I I thought back to when I ran and trained for that half marathon, mm. and. <clears throat> Everybody always says to run a marathon, it's not really about the physical, it's mental, right? But the training is what gets you there. You you nodded your head. Do you think it's both? I think it's both. Physical, mental, and, and emotional. emotional. I think it's all three. People keep saying, oh, it's mental, but yeah. they're missing two other components. Okay. If you're not fit, I don't care how mentally strong you are, <laughs> you're not going to get through it. So don't dismiss the concept of it's physical because it, it is. Yeah. It is. The mental piece just helps you get over that that hump. But yeah. it's the emotional piece that really gets you across the finish line. So so it but, it, but it's about the training, right? And the preparation of all three of those. And I was thinking like, you know, my whole life I've taken care of myself in multiple areas, spiritually, physically, mentally, back to your three things. And I think because of those pieces, I'm able to move through this horrible time in my life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because of that training. So I just was curious for you, what has running prepared you for? The lessons from running, what is that prepared for you? What, how are you prepared for the big obstacles that have hit you in your life? Well, I went through a divorce too. And it was during the 100th running 
of the Boston Marathon. Really? And we, the year before, we had 9,000 people in the race. That was 1995. 1996 was the 100th. I was directing it. And we had 40,000. We went from 9,000 to 40,000. Wow. And I was going through this really, really tough time in my life. And I'll be honest with you, the 100th running of the marathon actually saved my life because it gave me something else to focus on. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just full of self-pity and full of, oh, woe is me. I was, I was driven to, to focus on something greater than me, something huge. And so um, that's what managing, directing races has done for me. But in terms of um, truly what it does, it's this. When I decided to open up an event management company, people used to like smirk at me and saying, you really think you can earn a living putting on road races? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when people would ask me back then what I did for a living, I'd say, well, I'm a <clears throat> race director. I'd mumble it. You're a what? I'm a race director. Because it was almost embarrassing. Like, what the heck is that? Right. And they go, What's a race director do? Chalk mark in the road? <laughs> Y'all go? And I said, well, I, uh, I guess, yeah, I, sort of what we do. But truly, you know, what I do for a living is I help raise the level of self-confidence and self-esteem of tens of thousands of people in America. Oh. And that's what this industry does. When people say to me, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? Yes. I say the toughest part about running a marathon is signing the application, is making the commitment to have the courage and the guts to make the commitment. Because once you make the commitment, the, the, you know, you seal the deal. But then the next most important thing is you have to earn the right to do it. You have to train, you have to work at it, you have to earn the right, you have to suffer the consequences. You know, you have to surround yourself with a team. I've always felt there's no such thing as an individual achievement. It's everyone else working together to help you get to the starting line. Mm -hmm. So then you get to the starting line, you answer the gun, you run the course, you cross the finish line, you get the medal and magic happens. You go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in this world than to feel good about yourself because that's the very foundation by which we accomplish everything else in our lives. So that's what running has always done to me. Yeah, I've been competitive and I've done some crazy things, but truly I do it basically for that inner feeling of confidence, feeling good about myself, because truly in this world, you know, not to be selfish, but the most important person in this world is you. Dave. It's you. It has to be you because if you don't take care of yourself, yeah. if you don't advocate for yourself, then you're going to have, you're going to burden other people that have to take care of you for you. And you don't put yourself in a position where you can help other people. So it's, it's actually unselfish to focus on you. Because the I end result something? is you can give and you can you can give to other people and help other people. Do you know what my word for the year is? What is that? Self. 
Yeah. Self-care, self-love, self-worth, self-development, self-growth. That is my word of the year. And guess guess what? What? That is that is not selfish. No. And you know, I used to it think it took me 47 years to get I understand, there. Right? But, I, 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 but but I'm sorry, I, it is. I get it. And I used to go out for a run in the early years and think, ah, oh, I feel guilty. I'm leaving my family behind. I'm taking I'm just focusing on me. And now I've changed my whole attitude about it and said, take care of you so you're around to take care of them. You know, yeah. just like on the airlines, if something were to happen and oxygen comes down, what do they say? Put it on you first. Exactly. Or you're not going to be able to help the person sitting next to you. Okay. Can we, uh, okay. Can you tell the story of your first race? Yeah, sure. Uh, I love that story. So, um, I, when I was 17 years old, high school senior, mm-hmm. and I heard about the Boston Marathon, and I called up my grandfather, and I said, Grandpa, um, I'm going to run in that race a- in Boston. He says, oh, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, well, that's a good name for it. Well, I'm going to run in it. So he says, okay, I'll meet you at Coolidge Corner. And I said, great, where's that? He says, 24 miles. I live right up the road from it. I'll just walk over. I said, okay, I'll see you in 24 miles. My brother drives me to the start. I take off. I'm running, I'm running. I got to about 19 miles in the hills, and bam, down I go, flat Mm -hmm. out. I got taken to the local Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. I called my parents. I said, Can you come pick me up. They picked me up, drove me home. I called my grandfather. No answer. Called him again. No answer. Finally, 9 o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, Grandpa, where have you been? He said, Dave, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all night. The old man goes by. The street sweepers go by. No day. I said, I, uh, I failed. He said, what? I said, I quit. He said, nah. No, you didn't. I said, no, what I do? He, he said, you learned. I said, great. What I learned? He said, you learned that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You had no business being in that race. You didn't earn that right. I said, you're right. He says, I'll cut another deal with you. And I said, what's that? He said, um, you train. Now, there's a novelty. You train. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be there waiting for you next year. I said, OK, deal. Two months later, my grandfather died. So I said, I got to do this for my grandfather, for the lesson he taught me. So I turned 18, officially registered for the race. I did all the training. I was ready to go. And the night before, I got sick and my parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. And, you know, I'm ready. You know, and they said, no, you're too sick. I said, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me before? They said, what's that? I said, how about a chance? I said, oh, isn't that all we ever want in life is a chance? Just give me a chance. Yeah, today I don't feel well, but tomorrow's a different day. Every day's a gift. Give me a chance. Okay, fine. So they drove me to the stop the next morning. I took off. I got to five miles. I'm like, oh, this is awful. There's nothing left in the tank. My parents were right. I kept on going. I got to the halfway point. And there's my parents standing on the side of the road. And there's my mother. And what's she doing? She's crying. Oh. Why? Because that's what mothers do. They cry. <laughs> Why? Because they're going through more pain than you'll ever go through. 
right? They're worried about you. Mm -hmm. But then there's my father next to my mother, and what's he doing? He's taking pictures (laughs) of my mother crying, you know? Cry over here. Um, And I was like, okay, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. And I finally get to the point where I dropped out the year before, and I'm doing a survivor shuffle over the hill. I have nothing left, and I got to 21 and a half, and bam, down I go again. Oh, my God. Dropped out second year in a row. Now, my whole mission in life was to be an athlete, and I'm the last one cut, the last one picked, dropped out of my first Boston Marathon. Now I just dropped out of my second Boston Marathon, head in my hand, sitting on the curb, thinking to myself, you are a loser. And I thought, this is it. This is my fate. I wasn't meant to be an athlete. Then another defining moment happened. And I turned around. I said, this place looks familiar. And right behind me was the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And there was his tombstone right behind me. And that son of a gun said he'd be there waiting for me. And And there he was, right behind me. He He was was. there spiritually. He wasn't there physically because, like we said, not everything's physical in life. Yeah. And I said, son of a gun, he kept his end of the deal. I'm going to keep my end of the deal. So I picked myself up and I finished my very first marathon. And I said when I crossed that finish line in 1973 that I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life in honor and tribute of the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right to do this. And I've run the marathon now for the last 48 years in a row. It's amazing. It's so, I love that story. And and I'm sure you've had, I'm sure you've heard of many stories. I'm sure you've had many cool stories like that and like little miracle God shots and things like that. People often say that they run to clear their head or they run for redemption or they run for, you know, what has been the most impactful story that you've either heard or for you? I mean, you gave a biggie right there. Yeah. Well, there, there are so many. I right? know. And, and, I know. And, and again, initially I ran to be an athlete and yeah. I ran to be competitive. And then, you know, as the aging process sets in, mm-hmm. you can still be competitive at your level But at the same time, now you're starting to think a little bit about health and fitness and, you know, just staying in the game. And so, you know, that's why I continued. And also, I I continually set challenging goals for myself, again, not to prove anyone wrong, but to prove me right that I can still do this stuff. Um, You know, in the, the last chapter of my book, it's called Changing the Rules. Yeah. And what I mean by that in life, you know, we all recognize that you can't do today, most likely, what you were able to do 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but just change the rules, right? And, and So has and, that been easy for you to change the rules? Like, well, how did you, when did you recognize or sort of surrendered to the fact, accepted, I need to change the rules? How'd you, you know, know that? Learn it. Yeah, I know. It's a good, it's a really good question. You know, you keep pushing yourself and pushing yourself and then, you know, even though you're putting the effort in, you're not getting the, re- the same the return. results. Yeah. The return. And again, you can you can then give, you know, cash it in and say, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Or you can reset and reset your own expectations. Yeah. And I've always been about setting goals up for success, not failure. And so that. one of them is this. When I was 12 years old yeah. um, on my birthday... I 
ran around this pond near my house. I ran six miles around the pond and then had the obligatory cake and ice cream. Then I said, ah, I got to go work that off. And I ran around the pond again. So I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And then when I turned 13, what did I do when I was 12? I ran 20, you know. So I ran 13 and 14, 14, 15 and 15. Oh my gosh. And I'm 66 now. And I've been running my age on my birthday for 54 consecutive years. You are so cool. And people say, what the heck are you going to do when you're 90? Right. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to be breathing. Right. And you want to be here. I want to be here. I want to. I want to get out of bed. Right. And then, you know, that's probably when I'll decide what I want to do. And it just brings me to the point of my motto in yes. life. And my motto in life is it's my game. So it's my rules. And so I can change the rules. And I've lived my life that way all my life. You know, it's your life to live as you see it. You know, and so when I have can... you because I'm, I'm, I'm going to push yeah. you on this one. So <laughs> you're highly competitive. You're a, you're an overachiever. You've achieved a lot. Mm -hmm. When have you gotten to the place where you've said, you know what? I can't do what I used to do. Do you is it like in the time that you like your running time or mm -hmm. where have you like allowed? Where have you changed the rules? Yeah, well, I, I, I just. I have realistic expectations. I don't mm. beat myself up over the fact that I can't run the same pace for a marathon today okay. that I ran 30 years ago. So are you like, it's impossible. You know Good job. I ran, I ran it. I, I did it, you know, and it's funny because a lot of times I'll be standing at the finish line of the marathon and I'll be high-fiving people and yeah. someone come up to me and I'll say, Hey, Joe, how'd you do? He goes, well, I did okay. You know, my knee and my hip. And yeah. I probably shouldn't have stopped for the burger and the beer along the way. Um, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, stop being full of self-pity. You just ran a marathon, dude. Right. And, you know, there's 0.007% of people in this country can do what you just did. You know, cut yourself some slack. And that's... That, that's the problem with a lot of people. They, they can be full of self-pity when they should be praising themselves mm -hmm. for effort and just a overall accomplishment. And I've always felt that there's truly, there's only one way in this world you yeah. can fail, and that's not to try. That's the only way you can fail. You just failed, right? So if you try and you don't achieve your goals, it's a learning experience. It's not failure. And people got to get this concept of failure out of their head. And it scares them out of setting goals and going after yep. things. And, and I've never been afraid of doing that as long as I feel I've earned the right to set that goal. Got it. Okay. So I have two, one yeah. comment. Do you think that the reason why you are, um, you're kind of fearless around things is because you were the youngest of five and you had to keep up with your siblings. Like you probably were more athletic than anybody else because you had to keep up. So I'm not saying I was bullied physically when I was a kid. Yeah. But I was 
sort of bull, bullied emotionally. Like, yeah. again, being felt to not belong. And that, I just spun that around. I wow. turned the negative into a positive, And I said, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve, whether they pick me or not. I'll show and you, I, kind I, of. I, yeah, in a sense. But, I mean, it was more about me feeling good about me Yourself. than me proving them wrong. That's not my that's not my that? MO yeah, in life. You're right. it, it's not like to work really hard. I'll show them. I hardly have ever said that in my life. Yeah. I'm not driven to show I could care less about them. You know, if they're not if they're not giving me a chance, if they're not, you know, friendly or any of that, I just dismiss them. Yeah. You don't want to focus time or energy on that. No. Um you're, I'm just so intrigued in your psyche. So your mom or dad or your grandfather, um, your grandfather, what what was he like? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I was so young at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, All I knew of him mainly was that he took an interest in my athleticism. He was mm-hmm. there all the time. And that just meant so much to me mm-hmm. that he he would get on a train, he would get you know he uh, get on in a taxi. How he didn't drive, he didn't have a license, or and but somehow some way I'd look in the stands and he's there, like Grandpa, like how'd you get here, you know, kind of a thing, yeah. like divine intervention or something, right? And I just felt like you know I owed him in a sense, you know that that I, I can't quit on him. Yeah. You know, so um, so that 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 helped me get through the the early challenges that I had. That's love. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, we we have to talk about the Boston Marathon uh, yeah. bombing because you know every listener. If I don't, they're going to be like, "How could you not ask him <laughs> about that?" Uh-huh. Um, can you take us back to that day and what your experience was with yeah. it? So the year before mm-hmm. was the hot year we had. It was like 90 and the inferno year. And it was awful. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years before that, it was a nor'easter. And I was just getting tired <laughs> with all these crazy weather scenarios and having like, this is hard enough. We got 30,000 people point to point, all that. Wow. That's hard enough. Come on, Mother Nature, stop it. And so when 2013 came, I woke up and it was beautiful, glorious. I said, finally, we got a good one. And I get to the start and I'm, you know, about to start the races and stuff. And uh, I stopped and I, I had a 26 second moment of silence for the 26 victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. Oh. And so you, you could hear a pin drop. In, at the start and the whole area, it was riveting how quiet it was and how everyone just stopped and thought about that tragedy and the school killings and all that. And then we went about our business. And but little did I know, standing there, you know, sort of honoring those that community and those people, that six hours later we would be experiencing our own tragedy 26 miles down the road. 
didn't know that then. Mm -hmm. Off we went. I'm in the lead vehicle, lead motorcycle. I'm leading the whole race and just doing my thing. Get to the finish line, checking everything out. Race is going on. Everything's great. Going to the medical tent. No issues, hardly any carnage in there. Runners are doing okay. Mm -hmm. Go around, service area. How you doing? Metals, you know, blankets, food, water, Gatorade. Everyone's good. Went back to the finish line. Everything's okay. Then I went up to the bleaches. My wife and kids were sitting in the bleaches, seven-year-old son. Gave him a hug. Then I said, okay, I'm probably going to head back to the start because I run the marathon after everyone else every right. year. Every year. You always run it after everybody Afterwards. else. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause I got to keep my promise that I'm going to run it every year, my game, my rules. So, you know, <laughs> it's getting near, you know, sort of automatic pilot things are moving along. You don't need me anymore. So I, someone drove me back out to the start and I'm standing on the starting line and all of a sudden my cell phone rings. And I said, Oh, and they're like, Dave, you got to get back here. Why? Um, there were two explosions and I'm thinking generators or something. I'm not thinking bombs. Why would I think bombs? Right. And, um, I had two state police officers with me and they drove me back. We went over a hundred miles an hour down the mass turnpike. I got, I got back to the start in 20 minutes and I got in there and they had evacuated the whole area. So no one was allowed in. It was a crime scene, oh. but state police let me in. I get in and I went. I, I, everything was spewed all over the place. It was just a disaster. Like what was spewed all over the place? I mean, just the water stations, the all the service areas, tables were all on the ground. It was almost like the bombs actually affected all that, but it didn't. It was just people trying to get out oh. for fear that there were other okay. devices all sure. over the place. Yes. So they were just pushing things out of the way just to evacuate. And... Um, almost like a mob scene, right? Mm -hmm. So then the first thing I did was I went into the medical tent. And again, I was only in there a couple hours earlier and there was not a lot of business. And I went in there this time and it was jammed, oh but not God. with runners, you know, of victims of the bombing. And so I saw all that. And then I said, well, I, you know, I'm not a medical person, so I'm not going to be of any service here. I need to get out and I need to find my family who were sitting in the bleachers. Right. I had called my wife a number of times and the cell service got knocked out because everybody was on their cell phone and it just it just blew up mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and uh so i couldn't get a hold of them i didn't know whether they were impacted by the bombing i didn't know if the bombs were underneath the bleaches i had no i had no information oh dave so i left the tent and i went to go to the finish and a police officer stops me and he said where are you going i said i'm going up to the finish line to find my family they said, well, you, you can't go up there. I said, well, I'm the race director. Here's my ID. He said, it's not your race anymore. And I knew then oh. that this was really serious. And there was nothing I could do. I couldn't go looking for my family. And I just had to pray that they were okay. So you literally could not could not go there because crime it's scene. It's a crime scene. Right. Exactly. So then... I said, well, I knew that about 6,500 runners were stopped about a mile up the road, um, but they were being funneled back towards the finish, not the course itself, but a roundabout way. Okay. And and they wanted to get their gear, you know, they 
put on the buses to be transported back right, from the start. Right, right, right. And um, the police wouldn't allow them to because they were afraid there were devices all where the buses were and all that. And I said, well, if we don't give them their gear back, they're not leaving here because room keys, car That's keys. That's what I was going to say, hotel they, keys. They, they, they yeah. need all that, right? So I asked the officer if I could just commandeer a few of my volunteers. Could we go on the buses and take all the bags off? And so they said, okay. And so we took 6,500 bags what? Off, off of buses. How later. long? How long did that take you? Oh, a couple of hours anyways, two, three hours. Yeah. Oh. So my while gosh. the runners are standing around waiting for their stuff, and the most eerie feeling was that as we laid out all these bags on the street, um, cell phones were going off in the bag. And so you got this impression that mom and dad and Des Moines, oh. Ira are calling their son, Billy, not knowing all they do is see on the news that bombs went off. They don't know whether their son, daughter, whatever, were impacted. And I couldn't go into every gear bag and answer the phone, but it just felt weird, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, eventually, you know, we got a lot of the bags back to the folks and they, they, they left. And so then I, you know, I had to stay in Boston for a couple of days. I finally realized my, parent, my kids and wife were able to uh, get out uh -huh. and get home safely. And when I got home a couple of days later, my seven-year-old son comes up to me and he gave me a hug and he said, hey, dad, what? He said, I never want you to direct that race again. And he associated danger with my job. And I said, look, it's just a road race. But it became on that day more than a road race. And so it was it was tough because it that that situation impacted a lot of people, not just physically, but emotionally. emotionally. And so we started recovering and Boston Strong and all that. And three, four months later, my son comes up to me and he said, Dad, remember I told you I never want you to direct a race again? I said, yeah, Luke, I remember. He says, you want to know why? I said, why? He says, because I want to direct it now. So he gained the strength. Oh he recovered himself. And he said he wanted to be part of the solution and part of the comeback. And, you know, it just always brings me back to my my motto now, which is, very pertinent in today's situation that the comeback will always be stronger than the setback. And that was the case in 2014. We came back, Meb Kofleski wins, an American, you know, it was epic. Yeah. And, you know, we've obviously had great events ever since. So that's going to take us, I, I, I think this is a great way to close out, which is, you know, with COVID, and I know that you all are doing some different things because actually a friend of mine um, wanted me to tell you that she actually ran the Boston both of those years, so the year that the bomb hit, and she came back the next year to finish it, mm -hmm. and she wanted to say thank you, and she's trying to do the virtual one this year. So maybe in response to COVID, um, what's been the silver lining for the Boston Marathon around that. Well, the silver lining for me was that last year, you know, I, 
I, I not not only direct. I, I'm just a consultant to the BAA, the Boston Marathon. I, I I'm not an employee. I own my own business and direct about 35 events a year all over the country. Yeah. And last year, every single event went over the cliff. And um, I always thought our industry was bulletproof and there was like no kryptonite. And, um, you know, obviously I was wrong because this pandemic came along and brought us to our knees. And so, but I just said, listen, people are dying. People are sick. And okay, you lost a few road races, you know, get over it. And, you know, pivot, you have a skill set, use it. So I did. And we started doing outdoor drive-in movies and COVID testing sites and renting our equipment to outdoor restaurants. And we kept a pulse, you know, throughout the summer and the fall. And then the winter came, it's like, ah, lost all that business now. And then what? And then we got a phone call from this organization that was hired by the Commonwealth to stand up two mass vaccination sites. And one was at Gillette Stadium when New England Patriots play, and another one was at Fenway Park where the Red Sox play. And they needed what they called logisticians. I never knew I was a Stop. logistician, but oh I'm a logistician. God. So I'm a logistics guy, yeah. I'm an operations guy. And they said, you know, we're going to be running a lot of people through these sites. We need people to know how to organize people and talk about transfer of skill sets. So I said, sign us up. So we've been doing this now for a month. Um, it's 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. We're working three sites right now, opening up a fourth in a, in a couple of weeks. We've uh, vaccinated about 200,000 people so far, and we're doing about 10,000 a day. And the silver lining is that, you know, we're helping people stay healthy. We're helping to keep people alive yeah, and we're helping to actually bring our own industry back. Yes. So that's what's Dave, going on in so my world. When I saw on your social media, the, the test, the vaccine yeah. sites, I didn't make that connection. Yeah. That's amazing. So we're managing them. That is when I asked that question, I did not know that that was <laughs> the answer there. That's wonderful. Yeah. And for our listeners, right? So when, when they call, like, had you thought of that idea or did somebody else think of that idea, call you? And would it, would you ever have said, nah, I can't do that? I mean, the timing was perfect because we had nothing else. I mean, if we had yeah. a full slate of events, then it might've been difficult to take this on. But this was like, you know, I mean, I was ready to work at the drive-through at McDonald's saying you want fries with that burger. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing left. There was yeah. no business. Yeah. And so when this came along, not only was it business, but it was the perfect business. And and us. business with a purpose, which is what you yes. do have been doing which is all what we along. Do. And there's there's a synergy between putting on races, lining people up, they go through the course, they cross the finish line, they get their medal, and they feel good about themselves. Here, we line people up, they go through the vaccination site, they get vaccinated, they go through the observation site, they leave the place, and they go home feeling good about themselves because we just helped save their life. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. All right, well... um, this has been a gift for me. Thank you, especially since you've been working so many hours a day, so many days a week. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for 
purpose-driven work that you've given the world and the lessons that you've taught me tonight. So thanks, Dave. Thank you. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 